So today's a, a fun day in the year as a church family. We are officially beginning for all those who would like to partake, and we encourage everyone to do so in some fashion. We're beginning what is now for us a regular spiritual discipline, spiritual practice to start the year as a church family. We do a three-week feast and fast. So I hope you drank a lot of water because it's the last water or food for three weeks. Just kidding. Completely kidding. I love making you nervous. It's fun. <laughs> I wasn't nervous. <laughs> Feasting and fasting for the next uh, three weeks. So what we do is we encourage or challenge everyone to fast from something of your choice. Ask the Holy Spirit. Set aside something that takes energy, attention, desire. Sweets and screens are really, really good candidates in the present world that we live in as a suggestion, because it's hard, <laughs> which is a good indicator. And we really don't try to put the emphasis that much on what you take away, although that's important, but it's really more about spending that hunger and thirsting to feast on God, to intentionally spend more time and energy passion, appetite, to feast on God, to draw closer to God, to get in God's word, to, to dwell, to live in his presence. Through some specific uh, spiritual disciplines, sacred pathways, practices, whatever you want to call them, ultimately, again, that's up to you. We will share some suggestions here at the end, and there is definitely power in doing these things together as a community, as a church family. But from the logistics standpoint, just know we're officially going to start our church family feast and fast today, and we will break that fast, breakfast, never saw that before, um, on Sunday, January 29th, so three weeks from today, and we will have a big feast, a physical, literal feast together. In past years, we've called it the Mountain of Meat. I don't know if that's what's going to happen, but there will be a wonderful feast uh, right outside after the service. So we encourage you to mark your calendars and plan to enjoy that time together uh, with the church family feasting together. If this all sounds like a little bit like, oh, wow, overwhelming, uh, it's really not. Uh, it's a way of simplifying things to start the year. We live in a world that is so utterly and sometimes completely distracting if we allow it to be, where there's so many stimulations coming our way and invitations to desire, to fulfill that appetite, to take a little bite of this and a little bite of that, a little stimulation here, a little, a little hit there. And that can be really detrimental to the soul, where the, it's, the soul comes alive in that quiet, kind of secret conversation, ongoing, pray without ceasing conversation of worship, delight, gratitude, and praise throughout the day. And so... The, fe the feast and fast is, is an attempt to start the year and, in a sense, declutter. Declutter a lot of those unnecessary distractions that, that might you know, satisfy for the moment or entice for the moment or distract for the moment, but aren't really helping the soul to be deeply satisfied in communion with God. And so we love to start the year as a way of 
It's an act of worship. It's a sacrifice to say that, God, you are worth more than anything else in my life. As an act of worship, I want to start this year and set it apart for you and say there's nothing more than I want in this year than to live into my destiny in Christ, which is to become closer to you and more like you. And so it, it, that fast and feast really heightens those spiritual sensors uh, to what God is wanting to say to each one of us as we start the year. And we'll get into some of the specifics of, of how to set some of those healthy goals and to, and to dig into some spiritual practices so it's not just about fasting from, but it's really about feasting on. And I want to jump right into Scripture this morning here and just bask for a moment in some great truths and promises about desire and satisfaction in God's Word. The idea of feasting the soul. Psalm 36, 7 to 9, the psalmist says this, and, and the psalms are great for this theme because they are about the conversation, the raw, honest conversations of, of our soul with God. And I love the honesty in the Psalms. There's a lot of vulnerability. There's a lot of brokenness, to be honest. David's not perfect. He wrote most of them. There's times when he's just mad at God, and he's just like, oh, my life's not going how I want. Oh, enemies are prospering. God, I think you forgot about your promises, which feel the freedom in. None of that is true. <laughs> But he's, he's able and okay, God's okay. God can handle the rawness, the honesty, the frustration of where he's currently at. And then in that prayer conversation, God redirects his paths. And usually by the end of it, he's like, actually, God, I'm sorry. Like, you know, you never left me. You never forsake me. You're so steadfast in your love. I was just whining a little bit. And, I, and we love the honesty of that. That makes for that authentic relationship with God. But what you, can, what you can see here in Psalm 36 is just watch for that genuine longing to be satisfied. And a question to ask is, do you have the freedom to come to God with this same kind of, in a sense, demand of, of hunger and thirst to be satisfied? Psalm 36 says it like this. How precious, verse 7. How precious is your steadfast love, O God. The children of mankind take refuge in the shadow of your wings. They feast on the abundance of your house, and you give them drink from the river of your delights. For with you is the fountain of life. In your light do we see light." I just love so much, it's so powerful and, and life-giving to see that the psalmist here makes no apology whatsoever for this deep desire to be satisfied. It is not unspiritual to recognize that the human soul has great cravings, longings, hungers, thirsts to be satisfied. It is, in fact, a God-given gift. And the, soul, the psalmist recognizes that. And, and he, I believe, gives us a healthy freedom 
to not say, you know what, you got to come to God and you got to take those longings to be satisfied, the longing for pleasure, the longing to be delighted. you gotta, you got to suppress all that because that's not religious. That's, that's not spiritual. That's for hedonists. That's for sinners. They want pleasure and satisfaction. you gotta, you just got to put all that away if you're going to follow God. And that could not be further from the biblical truth of what we see displayed in the psalmist. In fact, it's the opposite. He's saying God is the feast of abundance. God is the river of delight. And it's just I want to encourage us and challenge us to think about our, our concept of God and what who God is and how God wants to interact with us and is there a freedom in our soul to recognize that we long to be satisfied? We have hunger and thirst in life for pleasure and satisfaction. And the invitation from Scripture is, come, come into God's house where you feast on His abundance, where you drink from the river of God's delights. It's such incredible uh, imagery that God has a river of delights and he wants to share it with you. God is the feast of abundance that our soul is looking for and he wants to share that feast with you. I know for me that that just becomes so life-giving to break off the chains of kind of this religious mindset that says, oh, to follow God means to suppress all of those longings and desires for satisfaction. No, the Bible's message is the opposite. It says, come, taste and see that the Lord is good. What you have been looking for, what your soul is searching for, the God-given way that you've been created in that desire to be, to, to be satisfied, to drink of delights, God gave that to you. God made that in you, and you're made to feast on God as your abundance. You're made to drink from God's river of delights that he loves to share with his children. So we don't have to apologize about being, or, you know, or be embarrassed by that desire for pleasure and satisfaction. It's a gift from God and to be found in God. And so that's part of where we get excited in this feasting and fasting idea. There's nothing at all unspiritual about saying, I want to start the year, and man, I am hungry. I want to feast on God. I am so desiring of, with hunger and thirst in my soul to be satisfied there's no greater way God can be honored than to say, and God, I want you to be my soul's satisfaction. There's no higher way to glorify God in 2023 in your life than to seek God with everything you have so that in the greatest measure you've ever experienced, God is your feast of abundance. God is your river of delights. So we, we start this year with that, with that hunger and thirst and 100% convinced that it's an act of worship that glorifies God. It puts God as the highest treasure. I actually want to read another verse. 
in light of that. This is Isaiah 55. Come, everyone who thirsts, come to the waters. And he who has no money, come buy and eat. Come buy wine and milk without money and without price. Why do you spend your money for that which is not bread and your labor for that which does not satisfy? Listen diligently to me and eat what is good and delight yourselves in the richest of fare. Incline your ear to me and come to me here that your soul may live. I just love that because it's very similar to the other verse in that it's just, but it also goes really well with a fast in the sense that we are cutting out the things that don't satisfy our souls. We're worshiping him as the only one who, who can quench those deepest desires fully. So we're kicking out the checks mix so that we can have the ultimate alpha and omega prime rib, you know? But he, he is the only one who satisfies. And I love this, delight yourself, delight yourselves in the richest affair. Love it. And that parallels perfectly that phrase, delight yourself in the richest affair, Isaiah 55 written a couple hundred years apart from the Psalm 63, which continues that same theme. In verse 1, the psalmist cries, O God, you are my God. Earnestly I seek you. My soul thirsts for you. My flesh faints for you. In a dry and weary land where there is no water. So it's that same idea that nothing else will quench that thirst, that longing that we have. And in Isaiah 55, God's like, why are you spending your energy on that which can't satisfy, can't quench the thirst? And the psalmist here is just confessing as he's tried in so many different places to fulfill the soul. His poetic confession is, it's a dry and weary land where there is no water. There is no ultimate thirst quench for the soul. So I have looked upon you in the sanctuary, beholding your power and glory, because your steadfast love is better than life. My lips will praise you. So I will bless you as long as I live. In your name I will lift up my hands. My soul will be satisfied as with fat and rich food. My mouth will praise you with joyful lips." It's the same exact sense as Isaiah 55 where God says, come and delight yourself in rich food or the richest of fare. It's the same exact notion. My soul will be satisfied in the richest of fare. Another translation says, with marrow and fatness. And it's just this idea of imagine that ultimately satisfying feast in the physical sense. And the psalmist is saying, that's who God is for the soul. And make no apologies about it. But what's so powerful too is that you see in Psalm, 1, or Psalm 63 here, he takes personal ownership for earnestly seeking the Lord, for turn, from turning away from that which does not satisfy, that which does not quench, in order to fix his eyes on and earnestly seek the one who is the richest of fair. And that's where, as 
the Bible likes to do in pretty much everywhere, invite the reader, invite the one reading it to become the character. In a sense, we need to take this on and say, God, am I earnestly seeking you? Or ask yourself, am I earnestly seeking after God as the richest of fair? Am I turning away from that which does not quench and earnestly seeking the richest of fair? It's like Psalm 27.8, where the psalmist is talking to God and says, God, you have said, seek my face, and I have said to you, your face, O Lord, will I seek. That is truly one of, if not the greatest personal responsibility that God has given humanity. Are you going to earnestly seek God's face? Because no one can do it for you. Other people can be inspiring. They can be examples. But nobody can get inside your heart, soul, mind, and strength, as Jesus talked about it, to love God, your heart, soul, mind, and spirit. Nobody can do that earnest seeking for you. That has to be something that you and only you come to that ultimate decision, not only once, but again and again, that you are going to take that personal responsibility that I am going to earnestly seek God. I'm going to live under that... Uh, unbelievably incredible and precious reality that now through Christ, the veil is torn. Meaning that tangible experience of God's real presence, the holy of holies, which used to kill people because God is holy and, and we are not. And to be in God's real presence is a real problem because we're not holy. Thanks be to God for Jesus Christ who is our life, death, and resurrection. In his perfection, we can take on his perfection. It can become our perfection. So the Holy Father sees the perfection of Christ in us. So the veil is torn. That's that metaphor for, and a physical reality as well, for the presence of God is available to all. All have the potential of equal access to God. But, it is 100% true that not all experience God equally. Equal access, not equal experience. So what's the difference? The pursuit of God. Have you said to God, your face will I seek. I will make that the passionate pursuit of my life. I will take responsibility that this is, this is possibly, if not the truly greatest privilege and responsibility that you have given to humanity. That I can say, earnestly, I seek you. I want to read Jeremiah 29.11. And... Let's see here. For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord, plans for welfare and not for evil, plans to give you a hope and a future. We've all heard that verse a million times. But to this point of pursuit that God wants to pour out on us, that he 
is equally available to all of us, but that we need to make choices and make space for him on a regular and daily basis. How many of you have heard quoted in churches the rest of that verse very frequently? Not really. Well, you want to know what comes after it? It's the pursuit, which I love. Just beautifully fits in here. For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord, plans for welfare and not for evil, to give you a future and a hope. Then you will call upon me and come and pray to me, and I will hear you. You will seek me and find me when you seek me with all of your heart. Those verses go together. We will never experience the fullness of the goodness, the hope, and the welfare, and the plans to prosper us if we do not, with all of our hearts, live in pursuit of God daily. Amen to that. So continuing on that theme, I want to take us to Paul uh, in Philippians chapter 3. New Testament now, new covenant, post-life, death, and resurrection of Jesus, and he's living into this. It's the exact same passionate pursuit, earnest seeking that the psalmist models. In verse 3-8, very famously, Paul says, Indeed, I count everything as a loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. The surpassing worth, that's a value statement. There is nothing more valuable in all of the universe than knowing Christ. And so Paul says, I have considered everything a loss. I have given it up. I have considered it rubbish compared to the surpassing value, worth, pleasure, greatness of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake, I've suffered a loss of all these other things, but I count them as rubbish. Dung is the actual word, refuse, in order that I may gain Christ. So the true gospel of joy, which we saw that awesome phrase in Luke chapter 2 when we were looking into the Christmas story, the angels pronounced a gospel of great joy. So if your gospel does not include great joy, you're missing the gospel. The gospel of great joy from the beginning of the Bible and throughout, is simply knowing Christ. That's what we're made for. Knowing God is the feast of abundance and the river of delights. So as we begin this year, when we consider the goals that we have for our life, we consider the feasting and what are we feasting on, why not aim at the highest goal possible? Why aim low? <laughs> Knowing and becoming like Christ is the purpose of our existence. It's the goal set before us. It's the crown of life. It is eternal life, but it starts now. And then eternity is simply an increasing measure of what we already experience now in this life, which is knowing God. Paul says, I'm passionately pursuing. I've given up everything to know Christ. Jesus himself said, knowing God and Jesus Christ whom he sent is eternal life. John 17, 3. So eternal life is knowing God. Right now is knowing God. It's the same thing. <laughs> so if we're not about knowing God, eternal life is not going to be that exciting. That's an interesting point. <laughs> it's all about knowing Christ. 
in all of his beauty, majesty, mercy, tender, pow- tenderness, power, glory, everything. Everything that we long for, everything that we long to worship. And we look around the world, man, people worship. They can't get away from it. I, I saw, okay, I have a confession to make. I watched a Netflix documentary on Justin Bieber. <laughs> God, God, that got off that of my chest. All right. <sighs> now we're done. Let's pray. I, I, I just, no, he was very interesting. He, he, interesting young man. He's, he's trying to follow Jesus. I mean, he's prayers of mom. There's a fight. There's a battle. It's hard when you are literally worshiped. I mean, some of the footage, and this was my point, the, some of the footage in the concerts, oh my gosh, there's this young kid, he's 18, and, and just walking by the stage and having thousands of people, thousands of these, these young girls reaching out, screaming their heads off for like an hour and a half straight, like I mean, they're gonna touch God himself. You know that famous, is it the Michelangelo painting? God's reaching down to touch humanity. Humanity's reaching up to touch God. It's the great longing of the soul. And you literally see it in these young girls who, as he walks by the stage, it's like this, there's so much passion, longing, thirst, desire. If I could just touch him, my life would be fulfilled. I would be satisfied. And as he reaches down his hand like God to fulfill the soul of these young girls, and I am not exaggerating. This is the spiritual reality that's around us all the time. This is the Isaiah 55 where God's saying, you're just looking in the wrong place. You're, you're, spend, you're buying, you're spending your money on the bread that doesn't satisfy Touching Bieber might be good for a moment, but it's not what the soul's made for. And I'm not joking, but this is the world we live in. We all worship, so come on. You're reaching out to something. It might be the screen. It might be the donut. It might be Bieber. We've all, we're all reaching out. <laughs> but, but I was struck in the documentary, I'm, I'm trying to be serious, by... The utter seriousness with which these young ladies, the, I mean, it, it, it's an ecstatic experience. It's worship. They were more passionate than any of us this morning in worship. In like the, ah, oh, I need you. <laughs> I, I'm serious. <laughs> you did that really well. Well, I've, 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 I've had my, you know, fanboy days, you know, Why on earth am I talking about that? Where am I? Here we go. Why not aim at the highest goal? Knowing Christ, touching Christ. That's, what I, that's where we're going. We're all made to worship. We're all worshiping something. We all long for that touch. And what Paul's saying, what the whole Bible is saying, it's the touch of Christ that we need. To touch Christ, to know Christ. God. And, and once you've encountered Christ, you found what you're looking for, but then you're hungry for so much more because you know, no, that's it. That's it. That satisfies like nothing else. I need more of that. I need more of that touch of Christ. And, and that's where Paul goes on to say in Philippians 3, 12 to 17, listen to him talk about his passion for knowing Christ. He's just 
unloaded on us that famous 3.8, which says, I count everything a loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ. So that's what my life's all about now. And then he says this in verse 12, not that I have already obtained this or am already perfect. So what's the this? Circle that. The this is going back up to the prior paragraph. The this is knowing Christ in its eternal fullness and through that becoming like Christ or becoming perfect. As we get to know Christ, we get transformed to become like Christ. That's the 2 Corinthians 3, 13, 3, 16 to 18. As we behold him, we are transformed from one degree of glory to another to become like him. So it's this twofold. To know Christ and become like Christ is the only thing that ultimately matters in this life and the one to come. So Paul says, not that I have already obtained this or am already perfect, here's some powerful words, but I press on to make it my own because Christ Jesus has already made me his own. So there you go, the veil's torn, it's possible. He's already made you his own. You've expressed your faith in him, your genuine faith in him, his life, death, and perfection, in his resurrection, he has made you his own. You are his beloved child. Ephesians 1 says, all of the blessings of heaven are now yours in Christ. He has made you his own. But here's what Paul says. But I press on to make it my own. Christ has already made me his own, but I need to press on to make that more of my own. Where it's not just kind of like in my spiritual bank account, every blessing in heaven, but it's in, it's, I've got the cash in hand, if you will. But I've pre I pressed on so that I know Christ more experientially. I want to make it my own now and all the way into eternity. He goes on to say, brothers, I do not consider that I have made it my own. So he's saying, I'm not there yet. I don't know Christ perfectly yet. And I haven't been transformed to be perfectly like Christ yet. But one thing I do Forgetting what lies behind, here's some language that makes all of us inspired and uncomfortable. Here we go. Straining forward to what lies ahead, I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. That upward call of God in Christ Jesus is that knowing him and becoming like him He's already made that clear, and he's just using a little bit different language. That's that upward call. That's that aim high and press on. And so he says, he's, that's the goal of my life now. That's my upward call. I have a clear high aim. I have the highest aim. Could you possibly come up with a higher goal in life than to know God and become like him? I encourage you to find one. There is no higher aim. There is no higher goal. So Paul says, I'm shooting for the highest possible goal we can. I'm aiming high. And I'm pressing on because I'm not there yet. And in a sense, he's saying, this is the rest of my life. This is my life. I have found the goal, the highest aim. And until the day he calls me home, I am pressing on. 
And I love the, the zeal that is found in these two words. Press on and straining forward. I press on to make it my own. Talk about personal ownership. We're talking about that in the Psalms. Earnestly I seek you. Look at Paul's personal ownership. I press on to make it my own. What is it again? Knowing Christ. But look how like no one else can do it for me. I press on to make it my own. My encounters with Christ are ultimately up to me. He's already made me his own. He's done his part and will continue to do his part. You will find him when you seek him with all your heart. I press on to make it my own. Jesus, why are you so far away? Jesus is like, I'm not. I already made you my own. Will you make me your own? That's just the Bible. I know it's convicting. <laughs> but it's testimony of excitement. This is, this is how I read it. Sure, is it convicting? But really, it's not. It's under grace. I'm saved by grace. I'm not trying to earn God's love. It's, this is the divine potential that's sitting right in front of me every day. I can make Christ more my own. Wow. Well, let's get to work. Let's do the business. Let's be about our Father's business. And for all you got scared when I just said, let's do the work, guess what? It's right here in the Bible. Straining forward straining forward to what lies ahead. The literal meaning of straining is to exert maximum energy to the utmost. Now, Paul says that not about trying to earn God's love, earn a holiness, earn salvation. He lets Christ be perfect, but he's extremely serious that he is going to expend maximum effort and energy on that phenomenal heavenly privilege of knowing Christ. Because we're all going to spend our energy on something. So Paul's like, so aim high and press on. Give it your best. Give God your best. Because guess what? That's worship. That is worship. To say, I'm going to expend all my highest maximum energy to know Christ as my ultimate source of satisfaction. Is God going to be like, I am so dishonored by you right now. Would you please spend your energy on something else? Right? No, that is the ultimate worship. To say, God, you're worth everything. I'm going to spend every ounce of energy I got on glorifying you as the highest treasure of my soul. In order to experience this to the fullness that God wants us to, there is a real pulling away from what our culture wants us to do and what our culture says is normal. And I'll list a couple of words that really define our culture. Be entertained all day, all day. It's about, it's easy. You literally do nothing. You just turn on a screen 
and you just be entertained all day. And then, I mean, honestly, this is a huge thing of mine, is we're supposed to be led by the Spirit all day, but how many people are led by all the pings and updates on their phone? I'm not joking. Because when I am listening to the Spirit, often I'll get, say, a text from my sister who I love and adore and I want to stay connected to. She lives in Oregon, so it's precious to me to stay connected to her. But it regularly, things that are even are important regularly interrupt my being led by God, and I'll find myself sidetracked where I'm, oh, wait, where was I? I, I was actually writing down a word that the Lord was speaking to me. And, and I, I really feel like there, that there is a responsibility on our part to come against the normalcy in our culture and say, this is not Christ-like. I am not going to be led by my phone. I will be led by the Spirit, and there are changes that we will need to make to make that happen. So much of our culture is so toxic for the soul. It's just watching garbage endlessly. And, and sure, it's entertaining, and some of it, it's not bad inherently. But it's just when that's filling your soul all day long, that is what Isaiah 55 is talking about. Why do you labor for that which is not food? Or why do you labor for that which does not satisfy? I forget which part that goes with, but it's, it's not food. It doesn't satisfy. But here's the thing. We can't taste and see that God is good when we're in addiction to screens coming and snacking all day long. Your mind gets stuck. You can't hear the whisper in the cave. This is seriously bondage. It's bondage. I'm just saying it like it is because it's the truth. And you can look up screens and dopamine and addiction. You get a dopamine hit every time you open a text. And we need to be vigilant to guard our souls because the enemy is prowling around like a roaring lion all over the place. But you know what? He's also in the screens and how they take over our life and lead us all day long and occupy the place that God alone is meant to occupy. And he alone is meant to fill that place in our souls. He alone can fill us up to where we are filled with fat and rich food. And we're not just snacking all day on lifeless garbage that never makes us whole and complete. That's all I have to say. I'm convicted. Well, it's a process. It will it will always be it will always be an ongoing process and I want to say that. And there's grace for the journey. Where I'll feel like, "Hey, I've made major headway." And then all of a sudden one day, I'm texting friends that I adore and my sister that I adore, who I adore, and and I just find myself where I'm like, "Wow, I know. Like this is leading my day." And so we need to be vigilant and checking in with our souls and with God. And, and the other thing is, is screens are a drug. Go ahead and Google it. There's a reason why, who, what are the names? Bill Gates and... Yeah. Oh, Steve Jobs. Steve Jobs. And? Bill Gates. They don't <laughs> let their kids touch their screens. Touch screens. The screens they make, they know what it does to the brain. Their kids don't touch them. What, who you were... Well, yeah, it's just, I was reading it this week. There's an interesting article uh, from about 10 years ago 
or so when Steve Jobs had just introduced the iPad. And the reporter totally caught him off guard. He was like, oh, he's like, oh, I bet your kids are at home. They love having all these screens. They're so lucky, like, dad invented them. And he, like, totally shocked the guy, like, deadpan. He's like, oh, no, we don't have any of these in our house. My kids are not allowed to touch them. It's like, well, that should make you think. <laughs> That's her point. That the, the guy who invented the technology that knows exactly what it does and is aware of how it affects the brain, how it's addicting, doesn't let his kids touch it. You know, it's the same thing like uh, Robert Malone, right? The, one of the creators of the mRNA vaccine who is speaking out against how damaging it is to our bodies and all of the organs. He knows all about it. And these are the experts with regard to the screens, not allowing their children to touch them. And you can see it. I mean, it's devastating to us to look around and see it, especially in the children that are growing up on screens. And you know, the, the normal is that we're supposed to be present with God and with, with the people that matter. Lo love the Lord your God with all of your heart and love your neighbor as yourself. So we're supposed to be with God and people. That, that, those are the two greatest things in life. And the screens pull us away from an intimacy and, and a connectedness. And, and we can see, you can see it in the children who are being raised on the screens. And, and, and it's come to be to where it's so normal that it's like, oh, I need to get them out to play for like an hour. That should be flip-flopped. That is not how God intended a human soul to function healthily or a human brain to function healthily. And my husband and I have noticed, and it's, it is so sad that our, you know, many of our kids' friends who we just adore, they're precious, they're not, all, they're not present when you talk to them. You can notice in so many of the kids that have grown up on screens, they're never fully there. There's always just this distraction and they're back on their phones and they can never experience the fullness of life and they are literally living in bondage and addiction without even knowing it. So this is actually a huge thing. If we want to experience the fullness of God, if we want to taste and see that he is good, we have got to pull away from these things that literally give our brains dopamine stimulation like a drug. So that's, there you go, that's a fast. So as we're, we would recommend that one, and we do it ourselves and um, every year, and, and then usually come out of the fast and want to make adjustments, not just like, oh, great, now I go back to 24-7 on the screen, but more of like, yeah. man, I really noticed that I was so much more present with family, connected to the Father. And, and yes, we do live in a world where, for a lot of people, your, your phone is a tool for your work and you don't have a choice but to have it on for that purpose. And so then it's about, okay, how do we live in a way where we're led by the spirit and the phone is just a tool and we're not a tool of the phone. And that's literally the goal. Chris Breeding uh, hooked me up with Social Dilemma. That's a great documentary. Um, not as good as the Bieber one, but it's a great documentary <laughs> on Netflix. And it's, it's, it's a fact, it, he, they show how the developers, the developers of the phone and social media, they see us as the product. We are the tool. The goal is, meaning the goal is to just use the stimulating images, stories, clicks, dings, rings, and pings to keep us on the phone. 
because we're the product to sell. The longer we can just be on the screen, the more advertising money they get. And so literally the goal of the manufacturers of this and every app with it is to keep you on it. That was confessed by all the <laughs> developers of, this, of, this, of these programs and software. So if God's goal is to keep us led by the Spirit and their goal is to keep us led by this, that's a conflict. And so that's where it's like, no, we can use it as a tool. Don't become the tool. So practical applications of this would be put your phone in airplane mode. And another example is, you know, 5G just came out. Not only is it super toxic for human health, radiation isn't good for you even if you can't see it, but their goal is to have you connected all day long. So not only that is that destroying your cells, which I won't go into all the nerdy stuff of how it does and what, what it will do over time. Corporations don't care about our health. They care about money and money. <laughs> But it's so important to make practical changes. When you don't need your phone, turn it in airplane. And make adjustments so that you are not always connected. It will also help your well-being and your state of mind because believe it or not, the I have nerdy meters. We very much are into meters that measure the radiation that comes out of cell phones and Wi-Fi and stuff like that. And there's a reason why God didn't make it on the earth. It's because it's horrible for ourselves. It actually, our cells, it, it, it affects our brains tremendously. It affects inflammation tremendously. I mean, I could nerd you out. It opens these voltage-gated calcium channels that literally cause inflammation and stiffness in your entire body. It also cuts off the telomeres from your cell, Do you, the ends of your DNA. Do you know that cutting off the telomeres is the definition of aging? So what's happening is we are aging far faster than we were ever meant to be, only we don't know the difference because it's happening slowly like a slow cook, and we're just accepting what they give us. But if we could see how people lived 100 years ago and what their bodies were like and what their brains were like and what their brain scans looked like and the activity and the life that happened in their brain and the parts of our brains that are atrophied now, we would be in absolute shock because this, this isn't how God made the world. And it's really important that we seek the lordship of Jesus in every area, whether it's our food, whether it's our time, um, just how, how we spend our lives, that we look to Jesus, how did you make this? How did you design this? And we don't accept what our government or corporations tell us to do. We live under the lordship of Christ if we want to experience the fullness of Christ. Amen. So that's what this is ultimately about. There's the fasting, there's the feasting. It's about pursuing Christ. Now, the fasting part, that can be challenging, right? Because when we live into stuff normally, it's like, oh, to give that up or take that away, it's, there's a challenge. And so We've been talking for a few minutes here about screens, and I think everything is, is, a, is true that has been shared. But in this fast and feast, we want to ultimately say, pray on it. Pray for the three weeks and pray on, is there something that you can fast from that takes time, energy, appetite, attention, and just set that aside? And then where we really want to put the primary emphasis is, and then feast on God. And so we want to close our time with, with two uh, resources that we believe can really help facilitate that feasting on God. And one is the vision and goals paper 
that a lot of you began working on yesterday when we did the Vision and Goals workshop. And if you missed it, we have a podcast up. It's on the, the Facebook page right now, and we'll turn it into a, a YouTube by tomorrow. Um, and you can catch up to speed on the full you know, breadth of the, the Vision and Goal workshop that we were talking about. But essentially, and you, there's a bunch of papers out there, you can grab them, it says Vision and Goals. The idea would be, over the next three weeks, that you would take some time daily, regularly, don't know exactly what that might be, and you look into these different areas of your life and you come up with between God's word and listening to the spirit and feeling that cry of your heart, you come up with good, healthy, God-honoring, kingdom-advancing goals in your life. And all, every topic on those pages is very biblical. Like you really can't go wrong having a good biblical goal in these areas. One's about facing, how are you facing a big trial or obstacle? Another's about how you spend your time. Others are about the relationships you have with a spouse, a child, a close friend, how you are taking care of your own physical health, your finances, your at work, what's your vision for work, what's a goal to set, out in the neighborhood, on ministry and mission. These are all just very biblical topics that, like Paul, he has that ultimate game, uh, goal of aim and goal of knowing Christ, but under that ultimate goal, you have sub-goals that help achieve the greater goal. So knowing Christ is not going to happen by reading the Bible alone in your closet for 12 hours a day. That's not what Paul demonstrated. It was whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do it all for the glory of God. So really, knowing Christ is the ultimate goal, but it's also learning, therefore, how to develop these sub-goals where I'm knowing Christ. I'm getting to know Christ better through my interaction with my spouse. I'm getting to know Christ better through how I attack trials. I'm getting to know Christ better through how I take care of my body. I'm getting to know Christ better through how I approach work. And so all these sub-goals are you know, sub-ultimate to the highest aim of knowing Christ. And so we want to strongly recommend that you pick up one of those goals and uh, vision and goals worksheets, and over the next three weeks, don't rush it, but really spend some time digging into having clear vision and goals for this year that all ultimately come under that aim of knowing Christ more. And, and the vision and goals isn't about just us setting visions and goals that we've decided. It's about looking to the scriptures. It's about listening to the spirit of God. And I'm not going to go into all the stuff that we went into yesterday, but I highly, highly encourage you to listen to that message that we gave yesterday because it really, it, it, it lays out the tools that we lay out and in that worksheet and that we share in in the time we had yesterday, they, they lay out a feast yeah. where we can taste and see that he is good, where we can just start to be feasting on him and lining up with him. So I'll leave it at that. I super highly encourage you to listen to that. I mean, honestly, I think I'm going to listen to it again. <laughs> I had some great things to say, yes. <laughs> <clears throat> Lastly, yeah. Fast forward. <laughs> Well, we want to close our time with one more recommendation, and that would be the Lord's Prayer pamphlet uh, that you all have right in front of you. It was, it was given as a little party favor as we started our time. Uh, there's plenty more of them. If you didn't get one, 
uh, just grab one of those along with the vision and goals uh, worksheet. And that's something, the Lord's Prayer pamphlet is something that, that Don and I have worked on over the years and continue just to, to modify it personally and, and kind of revisit it and revise it. And so what you'll see there is the latest version where it has 31 different prayer exercises that are all under the Lord's Prayer. And we like to call it the Disciples' Prayer because it is directly in the Bible. It's in response to the disciples coming to Jesus and saying, Lord, teach us to pray. So yes, it's the Lord's Prayer because they saw him modeling all those things and, and, and demonstrating this life of prayer that was so more so different than they had ever experienced, so much more intimacy with the Father, so much power in the Spirit. But then Jesus taught them and said, you can pray like this too. And so we break down each of the kind of six phrases of the Lord's Prayer, and then the idea is, you practice it. Savor it. it. You savor it. You soak in it. You bask in it. In knowledge in the Bible is not information alone. It's experience. That's why Jesus said at the end of the Sermon on the Mount, anyone who hears these words of mine and puts them into practice is the one who builds their life on the rock. So you want to build your prayer life on the rock? It's not just about memorizing the Lord's Prayer it is about soaking in and digging in and putting into practice all of the deep theology and promises and attributes of God that undergird these tiny little phrases that, that Jesus teaches us. I mean, our Father, to be able to come to God with that as a deep reality in your soul will absolutely change your life. And so there's four or five prayer exercises to do for each segment of the Lord's Prayer. And the encouragement is to get practical, do one in the morning and one in the evening over the next three weeks. And there's a little grace in there for you're going to miss a day and then you're going to come to church on a day. So within that idea of one in the morning, one in the evening, you'll probably miss a day in the week. That's okay. Add in the vision and goals and there is plenty of feasting right there. And if you're almost Jesus and you get all that done and you're just still hungry for more, then read the Gospel of Luke and come tell me about it. For me, it's really, it's really important, you know, because we don't always feel so spiritual. Sometimes we'll even read parts of the Bible. Sometimes it's like, oh, God, you feel you're so good. And it's like you feel like your soul is feasting, you know, like I mean, during worship today. I was still I was still just in worship when we were up here. I was just somewhere else when we first began. And I kind of came back into, you know, hey, oh, I'm up here. We're supposed to be doing a message together. But um, I just want to encourage us that it's not just always this amazing, holy experience it, ta it takes time. You know, it's like when you eat, you don't immediately, some, some, oftentimes you don't immediately get filled with energy and think, oh, wow, I'm, an, I'm like an, Olympian ath an Olympic athlete. I can go, you know, run this race now. But you eat regularly. You fill your body with the nutrients that you need. So, and then, and you do eventually experience that. But what I want to say is that not every time is going to be this amazing wow, I'm just blown out of the water. Sometimes it may feel like nothing's really happening. And I'm not speaking that over us or anything. I'm just saying it is how it is. Sometimes we're just, it's not always like that, but just show up. Yep. Just show up and keep digging in. And as we just continue to taste and see that he is good, 
he will be there. But then I also just really like to ask him, I, I, I speak these verses over myself, um, Ephesians 1:17. I thank him, thank you, Jesus, for opening the eyes of my heart so that I can know you more, so that I can know the hope that, to which you call me, so I can know all of the riches of who you are and your character. And just thank him for that. Speak that out and thank him for that, that as you read his word, he is going to be opening the eyes of your heart to see him. And 2 Corinthians 3, 6, is it 16 and 17 or 17 and 18? one of those, yeah. is one of my favorites as well. For we all with unveiled face, beholding the glory of, the God, of God, are being transformed into his image from one degree of glory to another. So as we, as we look at him, as we gaze on his word, as we ask him to transform us, we can be we can be confident that sometimes even if we feel nothing, that he is at work and even just speaking that out. So I just want to encourage us not, you know, it's like you get home after a message like this and you're like, yes, I'm going to go spend time with God. And sometimes you get there and it's like, you feel like you just got back from a church retreat and then you're back home and it just, wait, are you here? I'm not quite sure. He's there. He's always there. Whether there's, whether there's a manifest glory of his presence that you can feel and see and taste, or whether there's a still small voice or whether you feel nothing, He's there, and as you take the time to eat his words and drink of his spirit, you will see shifts. So just encouragement that it's not always going to be bells and whistles all the time, but just stick with it, and you will see him. I will sing a new song. I will sing a new song. Dance a new dance like David.